This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. My guest on today's show is Miko Pallet. Miko grew up in a prominent Zionist family who helped establish the state of Israel. His grandfather, in fact, signed Israel's Declaration of Independence. Miko even served in the Israel military for a short period of time. However, a personal tragedy drove Miko to explore the truth about Palestine. What he discovered shocked him and woke him up. Today, Miko is a prominent human rights activist fighting for peace and justice for Palestine. In 2012, Miko wrote a book called The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Welcome to the show, Miko. Thank you. I'm well. Good to be with you. What was it like growing up in your family? It's, uh, you described it well, a prominent Zionist family, a, a family that was uh, instrumental in the, the Zionist movement, in the creation of the State of Israel, and then people who held uh, important positions within the state in the beginning. And then my father, who was the generation that, uh, really the first generation of what you might call Israelis, were born in Palestine in the 1920s, both of my parents, and uh, then joined the militia that conducted the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which allowed the state of Israel to establish, to be established, and then remained as an officer to build the military, to build the army, what became known as the Israeli army. And then uh, he retired a general after the 1967 war, which was considered by many people this heroic military accomplishment, victory. And so he was, you know, that gener- that generation of Israeli generals are really considered in Israel as like, you know, the, the gods of the Olympus, you know. Right. And um, so that's my upbringing, you know, very, very Zionist, very proud of my family, very proud of their achievements, very proud to be part of that family. And that was kind of the beginning, you know, um, which makes, <laughs> which make the, for Palestinians, when I describe it in my book, in the general sun, makes it very difficult to read because it's almost, I'm glorifying the state of Israel, glorifying Zionism. But that was me growing up, you know, so that's my perspective growing up. As a kid growing up, what are some of the things you learned from your father and how did it shape your worldview? Well, it's not just my father, it's the entire environment that I was around. I mean, the family, the friends of the family, the extended family, uh, family gatherings. You know, you had all these people who were, who were uh, major figures in the state of Israel and major figures in the creation of Israel. And so this is the narrative that you learn, you know, for example, that the 1948 um, ethnic cleansing of Palestine was a heroic war of independence. And, you know, we were the few fighting against the many and we were heroic and smart and fast on our feet, which is why we were able to defeat the, our, our enemies and so on. So, the, you know, you, you believe that to be true because your family tells you this and not only tells you this, but then you read about this in school and then you hear the conversations, you know, the adults are talking about this. And we used to go on trips where uh, my father and all of his comrades in arms would describe these heroic uh, battles that they participated in and so forth. So this is what you grow up to believe. This is what you grow up to be, you know, part. you're part of that. That's a big part of your identity. And actually for many Israelis, the the events of 1948 and the Israeli version of these events are a big part of our identity as people, not just as as a nation, but as individuals. You know, if you take that away, we you strip us of 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 our identity, which is why it's so difficult for Israelis to hear any other narrative um, this, that describes the events of 1948, for example. 
So it's you know it's a it's a sense of of great pride, of course, when you don't know the other side, when you don't know this, any other story. Then of course it's a great sense of pride. How much of these stories did your, you know, whether it's your father, your grandfather, your extended family, how much of it did they completely buy into? Did they completely buy into this narrative, or is it more we are doing it for another reason, perhaps um, for enrichment, but we are putting forth this narrative of heroism, of, of battles, of, of, you know, preserving culture, and, and so on and so forth? No, they believed in this. They were ideolo- ideologues. Right. They believed in this. It was not for any kind of self-aggrandizement. Uh, they mm. believed thoroughly that they were on a mission, that they were doing important things, um, that's why that for that early generation of Zionists, um, there's there was hardly any corruption because they believed in living modestly, and you know even the prime minister, even the president's residence was a very modest place, and um, you know it, it's it wasn't about that at all. It was all about they truly believed in their in this in this mission of theirs, and they believed that they were saving the Jewish people and they were building a homeland for the Jewish people. And the fact that they're doing it at the expense of somebody else and the fact that they're creating this enormous injustice was never part of the conversation. It didn't matter because Arabs don't matter. You know, these natives of, of, of this Arab land are of no consequence. What's important is that we are making building a homeland for the Jewish people and we have a state and so forth. And they believed in this thoroughly. And even my father, who... After he retired from the military, he talked about um, making peace with the Palestinians and about Palestinian rights within the context of within within the within the context of, of a Zionist state. In other words, the two-state solution and so forth, giving the Palestinians a tiny little fraction of, of the state of of, the, of Palestine as a state. It was all done as as part of the project to ensure the existence of the Jewish state in the land of Israel. So th- this is something they believed in. Uh, you know, like I said, they were ideologues and they believed in it thoroughly. And again, that's why it's interesting to see if you know, the first couple of decades of the state of Israel there was there was, there was no corruption. You didn't see corruption. It's not like today when you have Benjamin Netanyahu, right. You know, types. Uh, these were people who lived simply and and modestly and really believed in what they were doing. You went to military school. You followed your father's footsteps, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I did the, mili- the I did the mandatory military service, right? But I did it eagerly. Because right. At, so at why first, why were you eager at that point? Because I believed that I I was a Zionist. I believed right. what I was told. You know, I, there was no reason for me not to believe it. Though I was never exposed to any other story at that point. And so, I mean, I heard at home from my father's work. You know, my father became very well known as an activist for peace with the Palestinians. And uh, he met with uh, Arafat and with other PLO, you know, Palestinian leaders and so on in exile, of course. And so that was the context. So I knew that Israel was doing some things wrong. But, of course, every country does. And it's within, you know, it's within the limits of what is might be acceptable, even though we need to combat it. We need to fight for it. We need to believe in peace. But uh, not to have an army, is, is a, you know, not to participate in the army was unthinkable. You know, and, you know, and at, at that time, and even to a large degree today, most Israeli kids, teenagers— are eager to go to the army. Right. I don't know. Today, it's not most anymore. To me, it's less than half. But in though, you know, when I was growing up, it was still all of my friends were eager to go or were excited about going uh, and, and being part of the army. And it wasn't until I was actually in the military and in the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon that the cracks began to show. 
and this idea, you know, idealism and belief in the state and belief in the in the in the righteousness of the state of Israel began. And that was really the, the beginning of that. So take me to that moment. Was there a moment of realization for you that you're on the wrong side of con- of the conflict? Uh, you know, when when did that moment happen? Well, it was uh, it was a gradual process, of right. course. I mean, once I got to that moment and I looked back. I realized that it was a gradual process. So I remember remembering I remember remembering that as I was growing up, my mother would tell me stories about things she saw as a young woman in Jerusalem in 1948. She was born and raised in Jerusalem. In 1948, you know, the the the, the western side of Jerusalem was, uh, you know, the ethnic cleansing of that part of Jerusalem was absolute. Not a single Palestinian was allowed to remain, not a single Palestinian family was allowed to remain. And she remembers seeing um, the looting, seeing trucks with loot. And she remembers hearing about how when the soldiers came in to these homes, some of the people already left because they knew the soldiers were coming. So they escaped and the coffee was still warm on the table. Mm -hmm. And these stories shocked her because she couldn't believe that we, who are supposed to be the good guys in in this story, in this tale, are doing this. And she told me the story many, many times as I was growing up. And it didn't click because it doesn't make sense. If we're the good guys, we don't do these things. We don't steal. We don't loot. We don't keep people out of their homes. It wasn't until much later on when I actually began my activism and I began engaging with Palestinians, which was rather late, um, that I remembered it and I began connecting the dots. Um, But the actual moment really, I think, was when I began actually engaging with Palestinians. It wasn't in Palestine. It wasn't in Jerusalem where I was growing up, funny enough. Because even though half of Jerusalem is still Palestinian, and the other half of Jerusalem used to be Palestinian, and there's very clear signs of Palestinian life still exists there, the homes and so on, it wasn't until I was in the United States that I met Palestinians for the first time, that I actually sat with Palestinians and talked. And that was really um, the point of no return for me. But at that point, did you already leave the military when you went to the United States? Oh, yeah, yeah. I did the three-year military service. And then, um, and so, but I wasn't really engaged in this issue until uh, 2000, 2001. So it was very later, much later in, in, in life that I actually um, began this, you know, this journey that I call the journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Right. What was your father's reaction at that point when you started to realize these things and you started to wonder if hmm, maybe, you know, we are not necessarily the good guys in the story. Maybe these stories, um, you know, what these ideologies that have been fed throughout my life, perhaps these are wrong. What was your father's reaction? Did you confront him about these things? No, he'd already passed away. Okay. He passed away in 1985. But what I, but the question that people always asked me, what would your father say today? Right. You know, what would he do today? What, would he agree with you today? And of course, there's no way of knowing for sure. But as I was writing the book, The General Son, I looked back at letters and articles that he'd written. I went to the Israeli army archives and read as much as, I was, as was available about him, which was quite a lot. And um, I found, for example, a video, an interview with him in 1991 or 1992, where he actually calls for sanctions against Israel. He calls on the international community. This is before the BDS movement was even born. Right. But he called on the international community to impose sanctions on the state of Israel. Otherwise, Israel would never agree to, to make peace with its neighbors or relinquish its territory, the, you know, end the occupation and so forth. Um, which was, to me, very, very interesting. But um, my mother, I, I had many conversations. She's still alive. 
And I had many conversations with her, and it was interesting to see she is kind of uh, ambivalent. So on the one hand, she agrees completely that the injustices were inexcusable, and kicking people out of their land is inexcusable. At the same time, she's very proud of her father and her and her husband for being these very important Zionists. She has these, you know, these these these, these two levels of 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 uh, of, um, of of existence, you know. But I know that my father insisted on on being being uh, re- referred to as a Zionist. He would not relinquish that, um, and he was. I mean, he never believed in in. Well, I'll say what he did believe, and he believed that Israel must allow the Palestinians to establish uh, their own independent state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. These were territories that make up only about twenty percent of Palestine, and were occupied by is by the Israel after the nineteen sixty seven war. And he said, well, this is the perfect solution. You know, we allow them to have their own state so we can have peace with them, but we still maintain control over most of Palestine. So we have the bigger portion here of the country, and it's it's the perfect solution. Otherwise, he said, we would end up exactly where we are today, where it's a single state. You have two nations living in that state, and you have only two options. It's either an apartheid state, which is what we have today, when the army is really acting to control the, the, the population and, and the resistance, or a democratic state, which is not a Jewish state anymore. It's just a democratic state with equal rights, both of which he thought were bad because then there would not be a Jewish democracy. Right. I think he didn't realize that a Jewish democracy was an oxymoron. It was impossible in an Arab country. It was right. impossible to achieve in an Arab country, so that's kind of the what, what, what I can what I can remember from his uh, you know his thoughts about this. So, how did your mom shape your perspectives? Because on the one hand, you have your dad who was a proud Zionist, and then your mom who talked to you about Israeli soldiers looting and whatnot. My mother admired people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and and all these figures from South African, you know, the South African Liberation Movement and the right. and the uh, African American Liberation Movement. So I was raised to 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 hear the songs and listen to the you know these people's lex, you know speeches and and know a lot about them. But again, like I said, she lived in this in this world where she had these two lie these two separate identities in a way. And I, there's an episode that I mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, uh, we're sitting at her. I was sitting at, you know, we're sitting together in the living room. And she, after my father passed away, she kept his study as it was, pretty much. And there's a picture of Israel's first prime minister, David Ben Gurion, that my father received. And it's, you know, with a, with a signature, you know, to General Pellet, da da da. And I said to her, "How can you keep this picture here hanging? He was a war criminal. He was a war criminal, and we should not be admired. His picture should not be hanging." And she looked at me and she said, how can you say that? Without being real, we would never have a state. He was like an important figure in, in, in establishing the Jewish state. And then I just let it go. It was obvious that uh, this was not going to get through to her. There were certain things she was not willing to give up. Right. And so the, the, the picture remained, <laughs> you know, remained on the wall for a very long time. So, you know, that's, that's, that's just who she was and who she still is, you know. Right. What made you ultimately want to pursue activism? It was forced on me. And uh, I think very often, sadly, we're forced into these situations as a result of something tragic. And so in my case, my sister's daughter was killed in a suicide attack in Jerusalem. And when something like this happens, you just can't go back to work in the morning like nothing happened, you know. And I was looking for—I didn't know exactly what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I knew I had to do something because, you know, three young men— decide to kill themselves, you know, and then kill a whole bunch of other civilians with them, including right. this little girl. 
you, you just can't just let it go. You just can't pretend like, oh, you know, terrorism and just move on. It doesn't work. And uh, and my sister, you know, whose daughter had just been killed, stood up and said, uh, you know, and, and, and people talked about revenge and retaliation, stood up and said, no real mother would want to see this happen to any other mother. Don't talk to me about killing more people as a, as a revenge. You know, this is, this is absurd. So, you know, that was kind of, and that, of course, were pretty strong words that affected me and many other deeply. So I, I it's... You, you can't you, if you have a conscience I think then you can't deny the complexities you know this is not you know good guy bad guy anymore this is much more complex than that and that was really what drove me to seek and meet Palestinians really for the first time and so I did it mostly in the United States but also when I would go back home I would you know engage and look for people to engage with and meet with and so forth and that was really again like I said that's kind of the point of no return because then you understand the complexities you can't separate one thing from the other on the show with me today is Miko Pallet, a human rights activist fighting for justice for Palestine. After the break, I ask him what made him pursue activism. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Darshan Johan. And on the show with me today is Miko Pallet, a human rights activist fighting for justice for Palestine. So Miko, what did you learn when you went to the United States? You you met up with Palestinians. How did that come about? Why did that come about? Well, after I, you know, so when my niece was killed, I was already living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and I, I, I wasn't really quite sure what to do. But I was eventually introduced to a, um, a group that was called a, a dialogue group, a Jewish-Palestinian, what they're called living room dialogue groups, where people would meet at people's homes and discuss things right. as a dialogue. So there's no accusation. You just tell your story. And... You know, I was I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Palestinians were telling these stories that I it was like day is night and night is day. It didn't make any sense. And I would notice that many of the Jewish people and many of the Israelis that would come to these meetings would leave very angrily and never come back. And oh, I can't we can't talk to these people. They're liars. And and I thought they can't all be lying. They can't, right. All the Palestinians couldn't have gotten together and created this conspiracy. And this was a time when, when several Israeli historians, the leading of which was Ilan Pape, Israeli historians, came out with what was termed as the new history. They were called the new historians. The Israeli archives had just opened, and they went in, and they looked and rewrote what happened in, about 19, in 1948. Right. And then Ilan Pape wrote the, his, you know, his epic book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Right. And I read that, and again, I it put everything in context, you know. And I met with him ever since we became friends, Elon Pape and I. And so then I began to get the larger picture. So in fact, the realization I made, and it's a very difficult realization anyway, but especially when you come from a family who had taken part in this and you thought it was heroic, turns out they had taken part in something that was criminal. And so... Um, How did that make you feel? Oh, very strange. At first, it was very bad, um, but at the same time, what are you going to do? It's, it is what it is. You have to deal with it. I had to decide, where do I stand in this? Right. You know, I had to make a choice, and my good fortune was that the Palestinian friends that I had made in, in the United States at the time, in this community, there were no pointing fingers, although they could have. My family had, there's there plenty to point fingers at. They kind of allowed me and welcomed me and allowed me to take these baby steps to understand and kind of get my head wrapped around this new reality, these new realizations. And they were very welcoming and they were very warm and they were very friendly. And I'm still very good friends with, you know, with, with, with some of them, most of them. 
And that's really what allowed me to gradually figure out where do I stand in all of this? You know, what is my identity? Because my identity was tied to these stories. And now these stories, I don't want to be identified with them. I reject them completely. And then I had to decide, do I support this crime or do I reject it? Because there's no, you can't be in the middle here. And I said, in good conscience, there's no way that I can support this crime. There's no way that I can, that I can um, legitimize these crimes. And so I had to come out as anti-Zionist. I had to come out with a very clear stance uh, for justice in Palestine and what that looks like. But it was a process. It was like having your arm cut off with a saw with no anesthesia. It was right. very painful. Yes. And, and I'm yeah. wondering, I want to dig into that a little bit more because, you know, you're talking about your entire worldview Come, coming, you know, crumbling down. It, yeah. It's almost like, you know, I can imagine like someone who believes that, like the earth is flat yeah. and then one day they're seeing satellite images yeah. of, of the earth being spherical. What went through your mind when you realized that your entire life has been a lie? It's not easy, um, but you have to, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not mm-hmm. like you sit one day and think about it because it's, it's, not, it's not static. It's an ongoing process. So, you, you know, you read the books and you hear the stories and then you hear more stories and then you go to Palestine and you engage with more Palestinians and then you get kind of a bigger picture of what's going on. And then you go and you visit more Palestinians and you realize that actually I grew up in, these little, um, in this little ghetto because the country is very small, but it's completely segregated. So Israelis never see Palestinians, and they don't need to. Right. And sometimes Palestinians are, live across the streets. I mean, some of the communities are very close geographically. But the life is entirely different. The mm-hmm. reality is entirely different. So I realized I grew up in this, in this very privileged sphere, completely unaware of who, who, at whose expense I was living, and the fact that all these other people were denied these same privileges for reasons that I couldn't understand and I couldn't accept. And that is, again, that's, that's an important realization to know that these very safe, very, you know, well-developed, you know, I never had to worry about water. I never had to worry about water. If I wanted right. to drink or take a shower, I mean, there was never an issue or water the, the, the mm-hmm. garden, you know. Palestinians get very little water, access to water, even if they live across the street from an Israeli neighborhood, you know, or roads, safe roads or lighting or electricity. I mean, these things that... I, I took for granted. I didn't think anybody in this in, the, in that country had any issues with this. I thought everybody had it. And you look at Palestinians, you go, why do they look like this? Why do they behave like this? Why? And then until you take the journey and you go inside and you leave your comfortable sphere and go to the sphere of the other, do you realize they're being denied this? It's not that they don't have, you know, they can't have it. They just won't. They're not allowed to enjoy these these privileges. And then you have to think, well, why? Is this somehow justified? I mean, can we justify this? Um, and then you say, okay, well, where do I stand in this? Well, since I do have a voice, then I have to use it to, 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 to expose this. Right. Once you did, quote unquote, sort of choose a side, you know, you came out, you know, you realize, um, you know, the, the, about the injustices, you came to the realization that you cannot support it anymore. And where you stand is you stand with the people of Palestine. What was the reaction from people within your community? People who were friends of mine, that was kind of the end of that, because Israelis don't want to have this conversation. They don't want to hear this. So it was very hard to maintain a friendship when this other person that you thought was a friend of yours supports this injustice. It's right. impossible to maintain that friendship. Right. Uh, in my family, we have there's a br- there's a broad scope of, of of opinions, but it's your family, so you know, it's your family. Right. 
Um, but my sphere, you know, when, when I'm in Palestine, which is which is quite often, I spend my time with my family and I spend my time with my Palestinian friends working on whatever it is that we're doing, you know, activism and so on. And that's it. Israelis do not want this conversation. And when I do engage with Israelis, they always say things like, well, we agree with you, but 95% or 90%. And I always say, yeah, it's that, you know, damn that 10%, you know, <laughs> if you can only find a way. And that 10% is actually seeing Palestinians as human. Right. That 10% is seeing Palestinians as people who deserve exactly what we deserve because they're human. And actually, we're there at their expense. This was their country. We took it. And so, you know, whatever privilege we have, they deserve, you know, and, and, and maybe and then some, you know. But Israelis really don't want to hear this. Even the Israeli, what, what they like to be called Israeli leftists, you know, it's at 5% that they always just can't quite bridge. <laughs> what are some of the challenges you face as an activist fighting for justice for Palestine? Um, you know, especially one that comes from a Zionist family. I'm wondering, you know, you go on the ground, um, you know, to do work with Palestinian people and do they have a, a lot of distrust? Like, why is this guy coming to help me? In the beginning, yeah, of mm-hmm. course there was. In mm-hmm. the beginning there was. I mean, building trust takes a long time. Right. Um, but uh, we're, uh, you know, we're past that. Mm-hmm. We're past that. And, um, you know, you and you have to pick a side. You can't be, there's no place in the middle here. Yeah, absolutely. This is some issues when it comes to... Um, uh, I have a friend, a Jewish activist who lives in the United States. He says, well, I, uh, you know, I oppose racism. What's your point of view? What's your opinion? And when Israelis, you ask them that question, they will say, well, yes, but. Right. Well, there's no but here. No if but. you say but, then you're allowing for this to continue. And that's typically what like, kind of lib- more liberal and leftist you know, Zionists will say, yes, but. Somehow Israel ha- deserves, deserves to, you know, to have this exception and to do what it does. And of course, it doesn't. There's no. There's no justification of this. There's no excuse for this whatsoever. Um, but you have to take a side, and once you take a side, that's it. You have. To, you have to. You know. You have to act and to and to do everything you can to to accomplish this. This to, or to rid the rid the world of this terrible injustice. Right. What is it like doing activism in Palestine? Um, because, like you said, I go back to what you said, where there was a point in your life where, you know. You were in your privilege bubble, and as far as the privilege bubble is concerned, things looked fine. Yeah, right. It, and you, the assumption was things are fine for everybody. Now you know the reality. You're on the, you are on the ground. Um, what is what is the reality of doing activism in Palestine? Um, we hear about journalists getting shot recently, and Al Jazeera journalist Sharin Abdul Agde, she got shot. Um, but this is not just a one once in a while thing. It, it happens yeah. like ju- journalists, activists, people yeah. get shot, regular people. What paint a picture for us? What is it like doing activism there? It's very hard because everything is marching in the wrong direction at a, at an in, at enormous speed. So you feel like you can never catch up. And so, on the one hand, you know, Palestinians are hardworking, you know, opti- generally optimistic people. I mean, kids go to school, people do their best to, you know, to maintain uh, a normal life and to fight for their rights. Um, but you realize that there's nobody outside to talk to. Nobody cares. You know, she did a If somebody suggested a year before she was killed that she was going to be killed, Nobody would believe that. It's absurd. They're not going to kill somebody that famous. And right. somebody, well, they they assassinated her and nothing happened. The world kept, you know, going the same business direction. Business as usual. Business as usual. Actually, it's even more than business as usual because Israel is gaining more and more and more victories. Mm-hmm. You know, they just made 
peace with uh, with Sudan, and now they're meeting with uh, uh, the government of Chad. And even in Muslim countries, there's basically, you know, outwardly support for Palestine, but you kind of dig deep a little bit and you scratch the surface and you see that people go, well, why not support Israel? You know, why not do business with Israel? Why not allow some business inv- you know, investment in our country from, you know, and that's a slippery slope. If you allow the, if you allow recognition of legitimization of the injustice, then you know where does it stop? It's very, very dangerous. So there's assumption that you know the Muslim countries are, you know, it's a place for for it's kind of like a safe haven for Palestinians. It's not because they're not standing up for Palestine. They talk a, a good talk, but they don't stand for Palestinian rights. The Arab countries we see one by one. They're falling into this trap of the what's called the Abraham Accords, and so it's very difficult because you see uh, a cause that is could not be more just, and where people in general uh, support, but then you see the governments and you see businesses and you see, you know, athletic agencies and 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 like the Olympics or the World Cup, they will allow Israel to come in. They don't understand that you have to boycott them. They don't understand that they should not be given a space. In any kind, in in any place, in any you know, whether it's academic or or, or sporting or, or cultural or any or certainly not diplomatic, there should not be Israeli Israeli diplomats in any capital. They should be sent home. You know, no state should have a, diplo- a, a, a an ambassador in Tel Aviv, certainly not in Jerusalem. But people are just slow to react, and I try to explain to them, look. Palestine is on the verge, especially now with the new Israeli government. You know. Uh, on the edge of a precipice, right. we have never seen. We haven't seen anything yet. All the all the all the suffering and the injustices that Palestinians have endured up to this point are nothing compared to what's coming up. And people just kind of nod their heads and, and move on with their life. And it's and there's a, the, and I, I feel a, a sense of urgency. But you know, uh, if uh, if if people of conscience do not understand the urgency and act, then um, that we're not going to see a change for good anyway. So. What keeps you go- going amidst the various defeats, the never-ending conflict? What gives you hope when, in your own words, things are marching in the wrong direction at a rapid speed? Well, uh, first of all, you uh, you know, uh, you, if you stop, then you've you've let the other side win without a fight, mm. you know. And I'm not willing to do that. Um, more importantly, it's my Palestinian friends. I mean, people who are throughout all of Palestine, and and just to be clear. You know, the entire historic Palestine is what I call Palestine. I don't call Israel and Palestine. There's no such thing, you know. Palestine is Palestine. It's a very clear country. Israel has taken over it, but it's all Palestine. And I see Palestinian, uh, I mean, last, you know, May of 2021, Palestinians stood up and said to the world, there's no West Bank, there's no Gaza Strip, there are no differences. We are one nation, it's one country, and we're standing up. And there was this, you know, this massive uprising which was heroic. And, of course, Palestinians pay a heavy price, you know, in death and arrests and so forth. Um, and uh, that, when I see that, how, you know, how can I you know, lose hope when I see that, you know? And my job is not to question the hope. My job is to support that and make sure that Palestinians, this, this becomes a reality and people understand what, what, what that was and what it meant. What message would you give people who are Zionist sympathizers or... You know, the, the people who who say, yeah, I don't believe in violence, but I'm not a racist, but but in this case, you know, it's complicated. You've heard this many, many times, especially you. What do you tell them? 
Well, this whole narrative that somehow there's there's justification to Israeli violence is is false. This whole narrative that says yes, but is false. The all this whole narrative that says um, that somehow excuses the violence that Israel has been you know perpetrating against the Palestinians for over, almost a hundred years is absolutely false. There is no justification. There is no excuse. There is no nothing in the entire world that can justify what Israel does. And the narrative that somehow justifies it is false. So people are either ignorant or they're lying, and they need to decide whether they're ignorant or they're, or they're liars, which is, you know, it's up to them to decide. But anyone who can look at the bombing of Gaza, and the Gaza Strip, I'll give you that as an example, you know, over 2 million people living in this, in this open-air prison. There's no access to clean water, no access to medicine. It's being, they're being bombed on a regular basis. They, there's no freedom of travel. You know, there's, it's, it's horrifying. It's beyond belief, okay? If a child has—forget the bombing for a minute. If a child has an ear infection, which we know is incredibly painful, and there's no anti antibiotics, wow. and you're a parent, what do you do? Where do you go now? This is not in some you know place in the middle of God knows where. This is, you know, five minutes away from Gaza. There are perfectly good hospitals with all the medicine you possibly need, but they don't have access to that. A child with a curable disease or curable, uh, you know, cancer, for example, will die, whereas a child a few kilometers away who lives in, on the Israeli side, on the other side of the wall, will live. Because Israel decides who lives and who dies. Israel decides who gets care, who gets access to medical care or doesn't. You know, it's that severe. Now, this is five minutes away from Israeli towns and cities where people have a very good life. It's 30 minutes from Tel Aviv, which is this happy, wonderful, you know, Mediterranean city on the beach. And when they bomb Gaza, you can see the smoke from Tel Aviv. People on the beach can see it. Other beaches a little bit further south, you can hear it. Do you think they stop, uh, you know, going to the beach and uh, sitting in cafes and drinking? And No, nobody cares. So there's this—Israelis still live in that bubble that I used to live in. They still don't care. This doesn't mean anything to them. Bombing Gaza, no bombing Gaza, eh, it's got nothing to do with them. Um, and this is a terrible reality. So this is, this, is, this is not something that people can choose to ignore. This is not something that people can— excuse or justify in any way, shape, or form. You know, bombing, dropping millions of tons of bombs on a civilian population that never had a military force, that has no way to hide from it. There's no way, there are no air defenses. There are no, there's no way for them, you know, to defend themselves. And then justifying that in any way, I mean, I don't understand it. You know, I just can't understand it. Absolutely. Before we wrap this conversation up, Miko, I just have one last question for you. What would not just peace, but what would justice for Palestine look like? Well, the best that we can hope for, I think the best that we can shoot for right now, aim for, is uh, a free democratic Palestine with equal rights and uh, mechanisms that will allow the refugees to return. That is the best that I think we can hope for. So right now we have about 7.5 million Palestinians, about 6.5 million Israeli Jews living within historic Palestine, within the apartheid state of Israel. And it's important for people to realize that if they support Israel, they are supporting apartheid. They're supporting the, the, a crime against humanity, which has been defined, you know, apartheid has been defined as. So where should, what should we shoot for? We shoot for, we need to aim for the collapse of the apartheid regime and the transformation into a real democracy, one person, one vote, complete equal rights, and create the mechanisms to allow the refugees to turn, turn and be compensated. 
And on that note, Miko, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. That was Miko Pallet, a human rights activist fighting for justice for Palestine. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the Good Things podcast on the BFM app, BFM Jotmai, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dr. Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.